some nice easy questions. <laughs> At least to start with, you know. So. Okay, so this question of mindfulness, consciousness, awareness. <coughs> we actually had a little discussion about this among ourselves uh, today. I think to a large extent we're actually in agreement and we would use the terms in the same way. Consciousness is that basic quality or the, the simplest quality of knowing a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch. So it's just the bare cognizing faculty. I think what illustrates the difference between that and mindfulness uh, in a clear way, it's something I called, I called black lab consciousness. Are you familiar with black labs, the dogs? Oh, you could, it could be any dog, but black labs are particularly uh, funny <laughs> just to watch. You know, they're kind of running around, literally following their nose, <laughs> you know, just seeming to be having a good time. So they're conscious. They're knowing the smells and the sights and the sounds. Right? They're not unconscious. But they don't really look mindful. <laughs> You know, when you're watching them, it's not as if there's a mindfulness or a knowing of what they're knowing, right? They're just in that bare, that bare experience of knowing the different sense objects. So mindfulness is like a step, I don't know, they would say a step back or above or, you know, where we know what we're knowing. Right? And an example which you're all very familiar with and I think, again, illustrates the quality of mindfulness. We've talked about this a lot in the different instructions. When you have been lost in a thought, at that time, we're conscious. We're not unconscious. You know? And even if somebody asked, what were you thinking, we would be able to tell them. But when we're lost in the thought, we're not mindful of the fact that we're thinking. Right? We're just in it. So the knowing is there, consciousness is there, but we're not mindful. Then in those moments, we're lost in the thought, lost, lost, lost. And then in a certain moment, we wake up from being lost, where we know that we're thinking. Right there, we have a very clear experiential sense of what mindfulness means and the difference between mindfulness and consciousness. So I think that's, that's an experience which I'm sure you've all had because it's so, such a common part of our meditation. And that's why we've suggested really highlighting that moment or those moments of waking up from being lost because it does reveal the nature of mindfulness to us. Right? So it's worth not rushing back to some object, but to really uh, see and understand, oh yeah, this is mindfulness, as opposed to the consciousness that's there when we're lost.
awareness, and I think as Guy said this morning, awareness is not the translation of any specific Pali term. So this is a word in English, and it just has, you know, we use it in many ways. Sometimes just in colloquial English, we could use awareness to mean consciousness. You know, uh, maybe if somebody had been unconscious, you know, and then they come out of that, we might say, oh, they're aware now. And so that, that simply means they're conscious. We could mean it in the sense of being mindful. And we often use it this We often use awareness to be synonymous. You know, are you aware of a thought? Are you mindful of a thought? So sometimes it's used that way. Sometimes it's used to include the wisdom aspect. Because we can be mindful without wisdom. Right? Wisdom is, is, back up a little, mindfulness is one of the universal wholesome factors, which means that in every wholesome mind state, mindfulness is present. Non-greed, non-hatred are universal wholesome factors, which is why in every moment of mindfulness, in every moment of a wholesome mind state, we're not clinging to the object, we're not condemning the object. Because non-greed, non-hatred always arise together with mindfulness. Wisdom is not a universal. So we can be mindful, hold some mind state, sometimes wisdom is there, sometimes not. And wisdom is that invest, investigatory quality of mind. And in the Buddhist context, specifically understanding the three characteristics. You know, so we could have a very wholesome mind state of generosity, of compassion. Right? So mindfulness is there, these other wholesome states are there. Wisdom may or may not be there. So sometimes we use awareness to mean simply mindfulness. Sometimes we might use it to mean mindfulness plus wisdom. So with that term awareness, it really is important when we're using it to define how we're using it, because it can mean different things. So is that the same or different? Same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there we go. I hope that inspires confidence. <laughs> A different dog. <laughs> Thank you. 
Did you hear that in the back? I, I hear there are some nods of no back there. Okay, so I'll try to I'll try to recap it, and you can tell me if I've gotten the essence or not. The simplest example of what she was talking about was in asking about choiceless awareness. Sometimes are aware of sensations and mindful of them. And then if there's a little more investigation and trying to label what the sensation is and putting a note on it, that seems like a different moment than the awareness of the sensation. And is mindfulness operative there? And then there was another example of sometimes thoughts arising, just passing through the mind and aware of the thoughts as they're passing through. And sometimes the thoughts are passing through and might not know in the moment what the thought is saying, but afterwards kind of looking back and seeing, trying to see what it was they were saying. So is that being mindful? Is that? (laughs) These sessions keep my brain young. I think your observation that when you're putting a note on a sensation, that actually is not the same moment as feeling the sensation, but one can be mindful of the noting process. So the mindfulness is there of the sensation, and then, oh, pressure. So in that very moment of noting, it's the note that really becomes the object of the mindfulness. So the mindfulness can be continuous, and it's the same way in terms of aware of thought without understanding or or knowing clearly what they're saying, and then following moments when you're trying to recap it. You can be mindful of that process, you know, of trying to recap. And so the mindfulness really is choiceless if you're just tracking in each moment what process of mind is happening. Sometimes it's sensation, sometimes it's the noting. You know, sometimes it's just thought or sometimes it's remembering the thought to know what it's saying. So if you're right there with each process, so then you, you are settled back in a choiceless awareness. Did that... If you are being mindful of each of those processes in turn, that sounds fine. 
question is, can you speak at all? Maybe this isn't even a question. Um, can you speak at all about happiness or joy that could arise out of compassion, both on retreat, but more particularly out there in the world, where I'm a hospice volunteer and I spend a lot of time hanging around to churches mm. where compassion is really the only thing I got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So in doing the compassion meditation intensively, <coughs> um, <coughs> it's dropping into a space of more stillness and concentration, but it has a quite a somber feeling tone to it, and is just asking about, is there a, is there a space of joy or happiness in compassion? For those of you who uh, haven't done that practice particularly, uh, it's, uh, as you know, it's one of the Brahma-viharas, and it's related to metta, to, to loving-kindness, in that metta uh, expresses goodwill or good wishes for all beings. When we have that feeling of metta towards people who are suffering, it transmutes naturally into compassion. You know, because compassion is taking the suffering of beings as its object, as its main focus. So when we have metta towards beings who are suffering, the compassion comes quite naturally. It's, it's that feeling of, how can I help? It's helpful to begin to discern the difference between compassion and its near enemy, you know, which in Buddhist jargon is the state that's close, to, that looks like compassion, but actually isn't. So the near enemy of compassion is sorrow. You know, and very often, or yeah, sorrow or Sorrow is probably the best expression of it. And that's very easy to arise when we're in a situation where we're close to suffering. It's very easy to have that feeling of sorrow come up. And this is something you will have to explore in yourself, so it's not just, you know, kind of believing Buddhist philosophy. It's, it's really seeing in your own experience and discerning the difference in these feelings. In sorrow, in the feeling of sorrow, there's an aversion to suffering. So that there's that, there's that flavor of aversion that's mixed in. In compassion, it's not aversion. It's not aversion. It's the wish or the motivation to help. Right. And so there's an intimate relationship to the suffering, but it's being prompted by a different mind state. So when you look at the feeling you know, of somberness, is that a word? Uh, you want to see whether that's on the sorrow side, you know, with some aversion, or not. It could be that just 
in the compassion, in that feeling, you know, may you be free of suffering. May, with, with the sense of how the possibility of our alleviating it, the wish to alleviate it, that's really the, the essence of compassion. It's the wish to alleviate suffering. When that's there, free of aversion, I don't know if I would express that feeling as joy, but it's, it's an ennobling feeling. It's not, a, it's not a depressive feeling at all. You know, and that's why when you look at people who are just, you know, embodiments of compassion, for example, like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who's probably the, you know, the best known example, he's, he's supposed to be the, the manifestation of Chenrezig, the, the Bodhisattva of compassion. There is, there is an incredible lightness of his being in the face and in his coming very close to the most intense kind of suffering. And I think it's because of this difference. You know, it's not, it's not being flavored by aversion. So that's, that's what I would look at. And then if the mind is really centered as you're doing the practice in that wish or desire to alleviate suffering. You know, if you're really connecting with that as the motivating quality, then to see what the feeling tone is around that. And, and I think you'll find that it's not in any way depressive, it's really uplifting. But sometimes discerning the difference between, you know, a state and its near enemy, that can take, we really have to look carefully because they can, they can be very close. No, I think everybody heard that. Um, no, I think that your investigation of what these particular factors mean with different experiences is helpful, you know, because we want to put this into practice. It's to kind of have the list of factors and just 
being able to say them doesn't mean much. It's like, how do we experience them in our practice? So the question then is, what does vichara mean, that sustained application, with respect to thought, or really with respect to any object? Because not only thoughts, there are situations when, when not only thoughts disappear when we're mindful, sometimes we're just being mindful of changing objects, and in the moment you know, we see them arise, and in the moment we're aware of them, we're seeing their changing nature. So it's just that the vitaka and vichara in those moments are happening very close together and quickly. You know, it's like, mom- you could call it momentary vitaka and vichara. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be there, you know, over a noticeable duration. Um, and so with respect to thought, I would give more emphasis to discerning whether the mindfulness factor is present. Are you mindful of the thought? Are you mindful that you're thinking? If the mindfulness is there, that is, you're not lost in the thought, sometimes in the moment of being mindful, the thought just disappears because we're not feeding it. Sometimes there's a strong energy behind the thought, and it may continue, but from the moment of being mindful, even as it's continuing, we know that it's happening. A very interesting aspect of mindfulness of thinking, which involve vitaka and vichara, are when we consciously or intentionally think about something. You know, and, and in this context, the only allowance is Dharma reflections. <laughs> no intentional thinking about anything else. <laughs> that doesn't mean other thoughts aren't going to come. They'll come plenty. <laughs> but I was just thinking of that because when we're consciously reflecting on the Dharma, so there will, the thoughts will be continuing. There will be a whole train of thought. But because it's our intention to reflect on some Dharma point, we can be mindful of it, you know, of the whole sequence, and there will be vitaka and vichara, there will be the initial connection and then the sustained application. Is mindfulness and vitaka and vichara, what's the relationship between those three? Are vitaka and vichara mindful? Are those mindful? No, they're different factors, and they just have slightly different functions. You know, mindfulness, as I mentioned, is a universal wholesome factor. So it's always present in every wholesome state. Vitaka and vichara, they are called occasional mental factors, and they're neither wholesome nor unwholesome. Because we can have, we can have initial and sustained application with an unwholesome mind state, you know, where we connect with something and we stay with it, motivated by greed or by hatred. So vitaka and vichara are ethically neutral, and they're sometimes there, sometimes not there.
one suggestion with regard to the Vitaka and Vichara, don't think too much about it. And that's why, I mean, the beauty of this practice is that we can really simplify it in terms of what we're doing is cultivating the mindfulness in each moment, right, of what it is that's arising. We're aware, we, we know what it is, a thought, a sound, a sensation, you know, an emotion, whatever it is. And the continuity of mindfulness will bring everything we need. So all of this stuff is interesting, you know, and to have a few moments reflection on it but I wouldn't spend too much time on it. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about sort of the Buddhist principle of non-attachment and how that relates to uh, sort of important relationships in our lives. You know, how do you, how do you love you know, your family without being attached? Okay, so the question is the Buddhist notion of non-attachment and how this relates to relationships in our lives, for example, how we can love our families without being attached. The very question reveals the answer. Okay, so let's just do, we'll do a little one-minute guided meditation. If you, if you can, just for a moment, think of someone for whom it's, na- it's just natural to feel, have loving feeling for. You know, it may be a partner, it may be a child, it may be a parent, it may be a close friend. Just somebody in your life that you're really close to and that you really have love for. I don't know if, if right now you're able to conjure up, you know, to, or to connect with that feeling of loving them. And then feel, see if you can conjure up the feeling of being attached to them. They're really different feelings. Not only are they different, in some way they're completely opposite. At least my experience, when I feel most loving, to me it feels like a generosity of the heart. It's that move. You know, it's, It's like a giving of the heart. Attachment is like a holding. So the energetic movement of these two states are completely different. One is this, and one is this. For most people, these two have become almost inextricably (laughs) interwoven. Why? because I think most people don't take the time to discern the difference. You know, they just, and it was just in your question, how can, we, how can we love somebody without being attached? And that's the normal, that's our normal way of relating. But I think it's because we haven't really taken the time or developed the discernment experientially to feel the difference. When we do, 
an interesting question to consider when you really feel the difference between those two qualities to ask the question, does attachment, that holding, in any way whatsoever enhance the feeling of love? I don't think so. In fact, I think the attachment is the source of a lot of problems. (laughs) You know, where does fear come from in relationships? Where does jealousy come from? Does it come from that generosity of heart or does it come from the holding? You know, where does openness, where does the loving feeling come from? Does it come from attachment? So I think this is a very interesting arena to explore. Um, yeah, and again, this is something each of us has to feel out for ourselves, so, it, so it's real, you know, so it's not some theoretical thing, but really to examine these different states within ourselves. So I guess it's, I think the root of my question is just sort of, it's, it's okay to sort of feel that, you know, if someone were to go away, you would feel sad. I mean, that's, that's love, but not attachment, or, or there's yeah. a possibility there. Yeah. So just the comment was that if somebody were to go away that we, that we love, we might feel sad, but that could be an expression of love rather than attachment. Yeah. But if there's, you know, weeping and wailing. <laughs> but, you know, this is... The, the, this is not... I don't want to put this out... Uh, this is not a superficial thing. This, this, this is a deep exploration. And one of the examples of the depth of it, you know, happened at the time of the Buddha's death, where all of, and people loved him, you know, as, as one could imagine. You know, this totally extraordinary being and the, the, the people who were around him. And many of the disciples who were not yet fully enlightened were lost in the weeping and wailing and grief. You know, and it's it said that those who were fully enlightened were not. So this is a deep thing. This is, not, this is not something superficial. But at whatever level we're looking at it, I think we can understand you know, on that level and ease to some extent, the suffering of attachment. It's so interesting to just... It's not only in this arena. It's just the habit of our minds that have developed over all of the years of our lives and you know, within the Buddhist understanding, maybe over many lifetimes, the habit of the mind to be seduced by suffering. You know, just so many times I've been in situations where something has come up, and it could be in relationships, it could be about anything else, 
where the mind gets just caught up in the story and whatever, and you know, I'm really suffering, and then you know, I'll notice it after a while, and the mind will just come to a place of ease and openness and spaciousness, awareness, peace. And then the mind will get caught back in the old story again. And I just watch my mind and peace, suffering. Oh, let's suffer. <laughs> That's basically what the mind is doing. Why? It's, it's out of habit. You know, it's, we've gone that way for so long because we haven't been paying careful attention. And so, you know, a lot of our practice is seeing that and realizing that we may have a choice. You know, we may not have to go to the suffering each time. But it, as you well know, it's a practice. It's not just like that. So maybe connected, maybe another habit, but I just uh, come into contact with my own kind of like, should I say, like uh, withholding love for myself as some kind of extortion until I'm right. Okay, so the question is, why do we hold, withhold love for ourselves uh, until somehow we feel that we deserve it or the conditions are right? I think you're correct in that it's a habit. And, you know, we've been all, we've, our minds have all been conditioned by so many things in our lives and the circumstances of our lives. And we have learned a lot of very unuseful habits, you know, habits that cause suffering. And the beauty of a retreat is we're in a situation where there aren't many distractions. You know, there's not a lot to do here. It's like <laughs> you sit and you walk and you eat a couple of times a day and that's it. And so we really get a very clear view of the patterns, of the habits, and it's only through that awareness that gradually, it's not, as I said, this is not a, it's not a quick thing, but through seeing the habit, and if we can begin to see the mind going to the old habit of suffering, in that moment of awareness, we might, no, I don't have to do that. You know, I've seen that so often. And it's not only the not doing what just brings suffering, it's also the doing of what actually is wholesome. You know, which is why the metta practice is so powerful, especially with respect to what you asked. You know, we're irrespective of the conditioning of our lives, we see we can make a choice. You know, we can cultivate just goodwill for ourselves. And the more we do it, the more that becomes the habit. You know, all of this, it just reveals the amazing nature of the mind as a phenomenon. You know, as, you, as you're going through the day, it's so easy to get caught up in like the techniques of what we're doing. 
sometimes I think it's helpful just to kind of sit back and it's almost as if one is holding the question for, you know, a little bit. Well, what is this mind? You know, here's this phenomenon. And it has all of these amazingly powerful energies at work. Some are wholesome, some are unwholesome. So just, <laughs> just to have a sense of amazement about it all. You know, and... For me, one of, the, one of the aspects of taking refuge is just that incredible sense of appreciation of the Buddha's mind that could sort it all out. You know, it's like he just gave us a map. Even just in terms of mapping, okay, these are wholesome mind states, these are unwholesome mind states, just that. You know, if we had to figure that out for ourselves, I mean, it's hard enough just connecting with three breaths in a row. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, there's just this amazing appreciation for the map is there, you know, which helps us to understand our minds. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the question, or the comment really, was about, you know, when the mind gets more concentrated, it both has the potential for deepening insight, but it also has the potential to fabricate a lot of concepts and ideas about, about these mind states. Is that... Uh-huh. And so even even kind of doubting the insights that come through deepening concentration and whether those insights are fabricated. I think this is a good reminder of what the essence of the practice is about. And it's not about any state, no matter what it is fabricated or unfabricated, it's about not clinging. And this is so hard to remember that, you know, we talk about all these wholesome states and the different kinds of insights 
And sometimes they are fabricated. You know, we, 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 we've heard about them and we kind of, you know, think that we're seeing it and maybe we are and maybe we're not. But the bottom line of the purpose of it all is to decondition the grasping in the mind. Why? Because when we're holding on, when we're grasping, that's the source of the suffering. And when we're not, that's a place of the end of suffering, a place of peace. And so a, um, really a check for you, or a, I'll back up a minute, one way of strengthening this attitude of not clinging to states or even to insights is um, just using intermittently or as, as often as is useful, just the mental note of whatever you're feeling. So concentration, equanimity, that becomes just another state to be mindful of. Just equanimity, equanimity, peace, whatever. So that we're not seduced into either fabricating anything about it or getting attached to the state because the freedom is in the mind that is not holding on, not holding on to anything. You know, in, in one of the famous Mahayana Sutras, Diamond Sutra, the, the pith instruction is develop a mind. One translation, which has a little problem with it, but develop a mind that clings to naught. Well, we don't want to cling even to naught. <laughs> so, so it's maybe develop a mind that doesn't cling to anything. You know, it's that letting go. So then you can see whether the insights that are there are in the service of not clinging or not. If they're not in the service of not clinging, then, then it may be a fabrication. Now, what's the purpose of seeing things as being, really seeing the changing nature of things, or the unsatisfying nature, or the selfless nature? The whole purpose of it is to decondition grasping. That's... <laughs> That's the purpose. That's, yeah, that's 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 that. <laughs> so is this clear? It's so easy, and I mean, I've, all of us have experienced so often the seduction of meditative states, you know, because it can get very. At times, it can get really pleasant, very peaceful, very insightful. I had one experience with Saira Upandita. I'd been there for a few months, and my practice was really in a very concentrated, what I felt to be a really deep place of concentration, of insight, and I was just, the mind was observing just the most minute aspects of experience, and I was completely fascinated 
by what I was seeing. And I went in and was reporting this to Sayadaw. And I was really happy with my practice. And all he said to me was, you're too attached to subtlety. (laughs) It was a great interview because I thought it was good practice. You know, and he just reframed the whole thing. I was fascinated with that level of perception. I didn't see it. You know? so. A fake question? No, faith. Faith. Okay. <laughs> Well, I think sort of in looking back, you know, I I see two two movements in the transmission of the Dharma to the West, and it's really an extraordinary time, you know, in the in the history of the Buddhist teachings, like a movement of the teachings from one culture to another, that's, that's, that's a huge thing. It's, you think of you know, when Buddhism first went from India to China and then you know, Southeast Asia to Japan. I mean, this was, this was something that happened over centuries and how slowly the transmission of those teachings you know, changed those cultures, had a profound impact on those cultures. And in the process, you know, many great masters emerged in each of those traditions. So we're at, we're at the very beginning of something that I think is tremendously significant. You know, and we, we're just in the very early stages of it. But it's, when you take that broader view, it's quite inspiring. So one of the things that's happening, I think, is the dissemination, the, the broad dissemination of the teachings. And when I think back to when we first started, IMS, the first started teaching about, you know, it's almost 40 years ago now. I mean, nobody had even heard of mindfulness. You know, and there was, it was just so unknown, and meditation was just a weird thing to do. 40 years, which is a very short time. I mean, we could almost say mindfulness is mainstream. You know, it's, it's amazing how it has disseminated and it's continuing to do so. So that's, that's a big movement. Out of that, out of that widespread dissemination, people practice with varying levels of interest, commitment, time. You know, and so we all come to it uh, with different, different levels of motivation and you know, everyone here is, don't undervalue the power of the commitment you made to be here. It's, it's, it's not ordinary. 
it's out of people doing practice like this and even longer that you know real depth of understanding and awakening happens and you see it you know you see there are there are examples of people who have really gone very deep in the practice but when you you know you look at some of the great uh, asian masters We were just talking today among us, you know, some of them, you know, they practice retreat in a cave for 20 years. <laughs> you know, so what's possible, the level of what's possible, you know, we, we, we are, I don't know what the right image is. It's like we're growing into it. You know, we're growing into the possibilities. So I don't know if that exactly answered your question, but enough. Not if you keep practicing. <laughs> I mean, I'm not worried about that because just the more it's disseminated, people will benefit on whatever level they're practicing and it helps to alleviate suffering. So all of that is good. As long as there are people who, both through study and practice, kind of appreciate the fullness of what's possible, you know, the real possibility of liberation and awakening. As long as that's out there, then people who are inspired by that uh, will go the distance. Yeah, and so, and so we each we each find our own level of interest and motivation. I think it's just important that there are always people who are really committed to the depth of practice so that that is not lost. But the fact that it's spread you know, widely where that may not be uh, the main motivation, it's fine. What's the story? Okay, so the question was about, really about, uh, in the transmission of the Dharma to the West from Asia, both what was brought over, you know, and whether uh, some cultural aspects from Asia were left behind, 
in the transmission, and also what have been the cultural influences from the West on the teachings. Is that? It's really interesting to me because I've heard and read a lot and in some way, you know, it's been a criticism that as Buddhism came to the West, you know, we've separated out the meditation and left kind of the rich cultural aspects of the teachings that are found in Asia, left that behind. But it's really interesting because in practicing with Asian teachers in Asia, it was just this. You know, it was just this practice of sitting and watching the mind. You know, whether studying with Munindraji in India or going to the monasteries, the meditation monasteries in Asia. It's true that in the society, there are a lot of other cultural manifestations. But in the practice of the teachings for liberation, for awakening, this is it. This, this is what we were taught in Asia. So it's not that you know, we left something behind. It's like we're bringing both what we learned there and also when we read the suttas, the Buddha's discourses, this is what he taught. One of the interesting cultural uh, impacts from the West, and this is an ongoing, uh, really an ongoing dialogue and experiment. Is understanding the interface of Western psychology with meditation, you know, and. I see them as two overlapping circles where there's quite a lot of overlap and also some differences. And so it's just understanding. I think we learned a lot from Western psychology of other tools for you know, being with the mind and especially difficult aspects of suffering in the mind. A lot of skillful psychological tools that we can employ. I think the danger or the caution in that is when we lose sight of the potential for liberation, which is really not part of Western psychology. That's, that's not what it does. It is possible to, I think, get in a way seduced by the relief, the, the real relief from suffering that many psychological tools can offer and limit ourselves, limit our aspirations. So I just see this, there's this dialogue that's going on. You know, to what degree is Western psychology helpful and useful? Is there a time when it becomes a limitation? So I see that as the kind of biggest, well, actually, there's, there's one other big impact. 
and this goes more to the cultural manifestation, uh, and we might call it the feminization of the Dharma in the West, because most Asian, it's pretty patriarchal, you know, and you, you just see it in those cultures and the difference between how the monks are treated and the nuns are treated, it's, it's there. And I think in the West, we're really uh, transforming that, you know, as you can see. Yeah, this, as you can see. <laughs> Which is a great thing. You know, it's really a great thing. <laughs> so, okay, last question. has raised sort of thing, questioning about, you know, is there anything that's mine that's, that, that belongs to me, my stuff, my thing? And it's kind of led me to think about the whole sort of practice of generosity. And, you know, I just wonder, you know, what your thoughts are, how to work with that. Um, this was a great question. The question was about working with generosity, and she's seeing just in her mind uh, a lack of generosity at times, and kind of holding on and what really belongs to us and what doesn't, and how to work with it. Carol is giving a whole talk on generosity on Friday. So she will answer every aspect. <laughs> No, it's, it's, it's a totally important, in some way, generosity is the manifestation of not clinging, of not holding on. So it's a beautiful practice, and it, it's worthy of not only one talk, but many talks, you know, because it's really an important, it's an important quality. So let's just sit for a couple of moments. May the merit of our practice be shared by all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.